The creation versus evolution argument is not about faith versus science. Neither can be proven or falsified by the scientific method. And in fact, both sides are looking at the same forensic evidence. The real question then is, which view is accurate? We're the Missouri Association for Creation. Welcome to our podcast. Today's podcast is part two of Zach Klein's interview with Dr. Marcus Ross. You can find part one on our website, mocreation.org. In part two, Zach and Dr. Ross will be discussing a recent theory proposed by Dr. Joshua Swamidas called Genealogical Adam and Eve. Yeah, Marv, this is a, an interesting topic and it might not be familiar to a lot of folks. Uh, the Genealogical Adam and Eve is a book published in 2019 by Josh Swamidas, as you said, who is a local professor here at Washington University here in St. Louis. And in some ways, it's a, a unique book in that it's trying to kind of strike a middle ground between theistic evolution, uh, which would essentially say that Genesis isn't teaching us any real history, that God directed naturalistic evolution and that humans evolved just like evolutionists believe, just that, like secular That the believe. Bible's foundation is not true. Exactly. Is right. what he's trying to say. Well, that, that will be the theistic evolution camp. And then you have the gap theory, progressive creation, guys like Hugh Ross, and they would argue that Genesis can be reinterpreted and stretched, right? They, they want to reinterpret right. the days of creation. They want to put time between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Josh Swamidas is trying to bridge that gap between two, I would argue, bad positions. Um, <laughs> but, but he's trying to say we can have theistic evolution and we can still have a real Adam and Eve. And we'll have to have Dr. Ross explain it because it is really complicated and it's the sort of thing where it just makes you feel grateful that we can just take God at his word, because when you don't, boy, things get complex fast. Well, and, you know, the thing is, with all of these views that are trying to figure out how to put things into the Bible rather than read the Bible as it plainly says, every one of them, the problem, they all have the same problem. The Bible says that Adam's sin brought death into the world. Yep. They have to figure out how there's death before sin. In each one of these views, there has to be death before sin, which is not what the Bible tells us. In fact, death has to be part of the mechanism by which humans and by which all of creation came to be, right. because you can't have evolution without organisms dying that are not as fit and the more fit surviving. The whole process is very much governed by death and by suffering. And yeah, this goes to what we talked about last episode, why creation is so important. It goes to the problem of what did sin actually do? What did Adam's sin do to creation? The Bible says that it changed everything and that we live in a world that is now marred by sin and by death and by the curse. And we look forward to a time when it will be restored. And all of these views, as you say, they, they, all of these old earth evolutionary views, these compromises, frankly, they all fail at that point. And I think we're going to see, uh, even in this conversation, that the genealogical Adam and Eve, while it is more sophisticated in some ways, it's definitely more complicated, nonetheless, it's going to fail at this point because how else do you do it? The Bible gives a very clear order of events. There's good creation, man, sin, and death. And that plays all the way into the New Testament for by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. It's a very simple formula. So nonetheless, uh, Dr. Swamidas, who we've had some conversations with, he claims that he's found the solution. 
and um, that he can make this all make sense. So uh, we're going to turn to Dr. Marcus Ross again in part two of our interview with him. We're going to ask him to answer some questions about this view. And uh, fortunately for us, Dr. Ross has been involved quite a bit in dialogue and debates with uh, Swamidas in particular, as well as some other folks that have similar views. And so of all the creationists out there, he probably has the most knowledge of all the nuts and bolts of these ideas, which are becoming popular. Um, we're, we're seeing a, a, a shift. Yeah. Well, what's happening, I think, is that um, the, the older, the old, old Earth views are starting to die off because they don't work. And this is going to take its place for many people, I, I suspect. If they're not willing to take the Genesis creation narrative literally and what the Bible says about the age of the Earth... What, what you gotta believe something, and so I, I think that that's that's largely what's going on here. But enough of my thoughts. We probably should <laughs> see what well, Dr. Ross has to tell yeah. us. Let's get with the interview, Zach. All right. So, Marcus, can you tell us what is the genealogical Adam and Eve theory hypothesis? Um, can you just kind of summarize what the both this particular book we're, we're talking about by Josh Wamadas in 2019? But there's other books, other uh, folks that have taken up similar positions. What is going on here? What, and what's different about this compared to some of the more conventional or traditional old earth creation uh, viewpoints that um, we're more familiar with? Yeah. So both the young earth creationists and old earth creationists have traditionally argued that Adam and Eve were the first created people and that there were no, uh, well, and that all humans alive today physically descend from them. A lot of old earth creationists believe that uh, other hominins like Neanderthals or whatnot simply were not human beings of any kind. Meanwhile, pressure from theistic evolutionists have been saying, listen, there never was a singular pair of people from which all humans arise. Uh, so Adam and Eve, if they existed at all, you know, maybe they're a covenantal pair or something like that. But there's been a push, particularly from uh, organizations like BioLogos, to say Adam and Eve simply did not exist. They they must be viewed mythologically. We have to adapt our Christianity to this new reality. There is no Adam and Eve. Into this fray come two individuals so far, and a few others that are unfamiliar outside of evangelicalism. So within evangelicalism, uh, Joshua Swamidas, as you mentioned, he came out in 2019 with the genealogical Adam and Eve. And uh, this year in 2022, uh, Andrew Loke, another uh, philosopher and theologian, Christian theologian, came out with a book called The Origin of Humanity and Evolution. Both of these are intended to lay out a possibility that Adam and Eve are the genealogical ancestors of all people alive today, but not the physical ancestors of every human being that has ever lived. So the way to think about this uh, in your mind to get an idea, think of kind of like a glass, if you will, that's got kind of angles on the sides and inside that glass is humanity. Both Swamidas and Loke believe that humanity evolved from Homo sapiens, our species evolved from previous ancestral stock that we came from other species, eventually down through apes and all the way down to you know, the whole of the evolutionary story here. So they believe that our species evolved like other theistic evolutionists believe. However, their wrinkle in this is that at some point in time through the evolution of humanity, God specially creates Adam and Eve or refashions them in some way, but there's a, a particular pair of people named Adam and Eve, and they are given the test in the garden. They fail that test, 
and introduce true sin into the world, that is culpable sin. But their children then start mating with the other children and marrying into the other peoples that are outside of the Garden of Eden. And in this way, their seed is supposed to continue to spread until it occupies the level of the glass, right? And so that in the modern world today, or a little bit before the time of Christ, somewhere around there, everybody could claim that Adam was their ancestor, even though he wasn't the ancestor of all people that ever lived. He only finally becomes the genealogical ancestor of everybody at some point around, say, for Swamidas, uh, the time of Jesus's ministry. And uh, Swamidas chooses the date of AD 1, mostly because of, say, Paul's sermon in Athens in Acts 17, where God says that from one man, he made all nations of men, right? And that the gospel is to go out into all nations. So Swamidas says, by the time Jesus is around, everybody must be a descendant of Adam so they can be saved. But prior to that, we don't have to have everybody as descendants of Adam. Uh, this is a process that is unfolding as Adam's genealogy seeps into the rest of humanity. Woke basically makes the same sort of argument, but they have some differences in how they view those people outside the garden. That's a term that uh, Swamidas prefers to use. He likes the term people outside the garden. For Swamidas, he says that the people created in Genesis 1 represent humanity that has evolved over time. So he takes Genesis 1 in a very figurative fashion. And when God says, let us make man in our image, he's making people, homo sapiens, could be Neanderthals as well, wh whatever God considers people, uh, mankind in his image, he makes during the creation week through evolution. And Swamidas looks at Genesis 2, the creation of Adam and Eve, and says that is a separate and later event in which God creates two particular people who will be the first humans, even though they're not the first people. So he tries to cleave a distinction between mankind that's created versus Adam and Eve becoming the first humans that God is then going to enact some sort of spiritual covenant with, for example. Andrew Locke, on the other hand, uh, views Adam and Eve as the people who are created on day six, even though humanity has also evolved uh, but he recognizes that there's a unity between Genesis 1 and 2 and that the people talked about in Genesis 1 are Adam and Eve. And so he simply refers to all of the people that don't come from Adam and Eve as non-humans. They are animals, uh, even though they're homo sapiens, right? They're the same species. They look like us. They have language and capacities. They even might have religious, we, we know from the anthropological record that the people that Loke would assign to those outside the garden would even have religious uh, beliefs. And he counts that as still not human. Uh, so these are the two people who have risen to the fore most recently in evangelicalism. This idea does go back. Uh, you can take John Stott uh, writing in 1986, he called the first uh, humans that God you know, put a soul into as homo divinus. He created a a species-like name for that. It, this is not good biology. You don't do that sort of thing. Um, but basically he would say Adam was the first homo divinus, the first person that God put a soul into. So there were reverberations of this going back almost 40 years now. And if you want to go back much further, uh, the first person to kind of write about the idea that maybe there were people outside the garden, maybe Adam's creation was not the first of all humanity. Uh, you go back to Isaac Lapierre, who wrote about this in the 1500s with the discovery of the new world, he started asking questions like, 
so where do the people in Greenland come from? Because it doesn't look like there's anybody in the Bible that I see them coming from. So he had this wild, and I say this uh, theologically accurately, he had a heretical idea. He was charged with heresy and forced to recant of this idea of his. But he, uh, he believed that Adam was the first Jew and that all the Gentiles were created in, in Genesis 1, but the first Jewish person was Adam created in Genesis 2. So this doesn't comport with anything in scripture. And uh, even though he wasn't Catholic, he was arrested by the Catholic church, forced to convert, then forced to uh, oh, wow. repent of his heresy, uh, which he sort of maybe kind of did. He was quite the wordsmith. Uh, we don't really, and, and he was supposed to not talk about it ever again. We know he did. But uh, this idea was hated from all across Christianity. Um, you know, 1500s, it's the beginning of the religious wars period, the Reformation. But nonetheless, the Catholics hated it. The Calvinists hated it. The Lutherans hated it. If the Baptists were willing to poke their heads up without getting killed, uh, they hated it. The French Protestants hated it as well. Within several years, there were a half a dozen massive critiques of this. And LaPierre basically had to shut up and not talk about it afterwards. So this idea has been kicked around from time to time. Um, and it's only now started filtering its way into evangelical circles, which is why you know, we're here to talk about it. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got a lot of questions uh, this uh, <laughs> about this whole theory. And as you say, it goes back quite a ways within the Christian circles, but it definitely seems to be coming to the forefront now uh, with books like uh, uh, Swamidas and, and Locke and, and, and others. I think even William Lane Craig is showing some sympathy towards yeah. that line of thinking. And just uh, sympathizing with our, our listener, because I know this can be, if, if you've not heard this before, it's probably difficult to figure out where this view even fits. You know, If we think about, and I'm just going to summarize things here, and Marcus, you can correct me, but if we look at kind of the traditional old earth creationist viewpoints, we have things like gap theory or progressive creation, which would be uh, the other Dr. Ross, Hugh Ross, uh, with reasons mm -hmm. to believe, um, which essentially they accept that Adam was a real person and they do other things with the text and they try to make a synthesis between the science and what the Bible says, either by inserting time between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, or by allegorizing the days of creation. And so you've got viewpoints like that that are essentially taking the text and trying to stretch it to make it accommodate uh, what they see as the scientific evidence. And then on the other side, you've had theistic evolution, which doesn't really worry that much about the text and trying to harmonize things other than the very broadest, you know, God is the creator of all things through a process of evolution. Yeah. Usually there is no literal Adam and Eve in that viewpoint, or at least it doesn't seem like there would be. Evolution doesn't have a single male-female pair as the founders of humanity. And so theistic evolution usually wouldn't have that. And so genealogical Adam and Eve, or GAE, and these related ideas are kind of a midpoint, which if you just say that they're almost, it's trying to take the theistic evolution perspective for the most part, but trying to find a way to insert Adam and Eve as real historical people who through some, and, and this is where it gets weird in the science side of things, who basically through intermarriage with other humans or human-like creatures through intermarriage, they become part of the same family tree, even though they didn't literally descend from Adam and Eve. And then Swamidas, uh, as you said, I guess he he has a particular point by which time he thinks that intermarriage 
had, you know, everybody had been infected with, you know, the <laughs> this uh, pathogen. Yeah, in- infected by sin. By you know, sin, basically. exactly right. Uh, which, yeah, and that again, I have lots of questions, and we won't have time to get to, to many of them. <laughs> but in brief, before we talk about the theology side and how Christians should think about this, is the science behind this really solid? Can we, especially given the the biblical time frame, can we through intermarriage all become part of the same family tree? People all over the world that may have arisen through various evolutionary lineages, again according to evolution. Yeah. And by now we all have a step or, or a great, 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 great uncle, Adam, I guess. Uh, how would this work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sooner or later, a great, great, great granddad uh, of of Adam, uh, but also great, great, great granddads of other people who aren't Adam, weren't human, you know, in, in these in the theological sense. Right. They're homo sapiens, but they're they're not humans in, in something like woke or Swamidas's model. So for Swamidas, he wants he wants there to be a possibility that Adam could be recent, created miraculously, a real fall in the garden, etc., and that that could have been six to ten thousand years ago. Um, he, uh, Swaminas grew up as a young Earth creationist, and his his book and his model is really a reaction against the theistic evolutionists who kept hammering over the past decade or more. Uh, that you cannot have a historical atom. It's impossible. Evolution doesn't allow it. But what Swamidas says is, no, genealogical ancestry allows there to be an atom. You can't say there cannot be an atom, right? You can't make that kind of universal negative statement when genealogically I could show that there could be a person who lived several thousand years ago who is the genealogical ancestor of everybody by the time of Jesus. So the way that he uh, supports that is he looks at, uh, he borrows from two genealogical studies, uh, especially one that was published in Science in 2004, uh, a group called uh, Road et al. uh, wrote about this. And they uh, took a look and modeled the migration of human beings and said, how long ago would it be before all the people alive today, in 2004 at this time, uh, could coalesce down to a single genealogical ancestor? What would be our most recent genealogical ancestor? And they said, uh, based on how fast people move around and modeling this sort of stuff, uh, they said that would be about 3,500 years ago. So uh, after the time of Abram, you know, about the time that the Israelites are leaving uh, Egypt, uh, could be the time where we all share a genealogical ancestor. Now, that's in 2000. So we have to drop that down 2,000 years, which would mean if, if the math was exactly the same, you know, then Adam and Eve could be 3,500 BC, which gets you pretty, you know, that's, that's within that, you know, 4,000 to 6,000. That's earlier than that. Sure. Uh, So on first blush, this looks eminently possible mathematically, at least Uh, table the theology side of things, which is disastrous, but mathematically that looks possible. The trouble is that more recent genealogical modeling that has been addressing Rode et al.'s paper published in 2016 by another group, uh, Kelleher et al., their modeling said that Road et al. was too generous with how fast people could migrate and how quickly genealogical spread would happen. They looked at it and said, no, it's going to take hundreds and hundreds of generations for this sort of thing, perhaps thousands of generations. And so rather than something like 3,500 years to get modern folks to coalesce to a genealogical ancestor, and again, with lots of other people living around, this would be more like 20,000 
or 30,000 or 50,000 or more, you know, their, their range was actually more like between 50 and a hundred thousand for how long it would take. That pushes us way out of any sort of recent genealogical atom that puts Adam 50, hundred thousand years ago. That's in the more typical old earth creationist camp. So that's not going to help the young earth creationists that Swamidas is trying to court. He's saying, listen, you can have a recent atom. It's all fine. Genealogy solves it. Wrote it all looked like it did. And I remember when that paper came out, uh, it was interesting. It was exciting. Um, but Kelleher et al. addresses a number of issues. Uh, Swamidas thinks that they're far too restrictive in how they allow uh, migration and mating. And that may be true, but at the same time, there has not been a solid published rebuttal to Kelleher. To this point, Kelleher et al.'s model is the top dog. And Swamidas knows it, but has chosen to focus on Rode et al. because it's the one that matches what he wants. And he, he just kind of dismisses Kelleher as, oh no, I can walk further in a day than they allow genealogical connections. What that misses is that travel and genealogical issues are very different from one another. Uh, my mom grew up in Rhode Island. She traveled and lived in California for a number of years, but then her family came back to Rhode Island and she married my dad and had me. My mom traveled a lot, but genealogically she never migrated. And migration is the key for genealogy. And there's a distinction between those. Um, those still need to be addressed by, uh, by Josh. He believes he has. He, he's like, Marcus, you can't bring these up to me. I've addressed these. He's written three sentences. So that's, that's not quite enough uh, on my, my thing. So I, I would say, could we all have genealogical ancestors in the recent past? It's possible. It might not be as likely as what Joshua Swamidas argues or what Andrew Loke argues. Uh, it's possible, but even that doesn't necessarily get us Adam and Eve, especially if we have a whole pool of other people living around. That's not who Adam and Eve are. Yeah. So I mean, what I'm taking away from this is that scientifically, this is not a slam dunk case. Oh, no. At best, it's a hypothesis and it could be true. It's a little bit, I mean, it's almost unprovable. If it, if it did happen, we we probably wouldn't know it. Yeah, that's a good point. But just in, in brief, I, mean, I can think of a lot of things and you you reference a few of them in your description, but this seems like it poses a lot of problems theologically, a lot of issues about you know, what it means to be a human and what's going on with, you know, as you said, people in getting the sin nature from Adam by intermarriage. This seems like, I mean, let alone the fact that it's completely unmentioned in scripture. Mm -hmm. This is not something you're going to get any biblical help on. This seems like it has a lot of theological problems. And I know you've been involved in going to some venues where you can speak with folks from seminaries and such that are, are involved in biblical research, biblical studies and theology. In brief, what's your experience been and how, how, how are you engaging with this? Uh, and what are some of the big problems that, that you see with this uh, new perspective? Well, thanks. That's an interesting question to bring up. As a paleontologist, I never cared <laughs> about the, the hominid record. <laughs> like, I, I like dinosaurs and mosasaurs and trilobites. And I, you know, I'm an introvert. I don't like people. So Even the fossil <laughs> ones. Even if I don't know, oh, this is a mess. I don't want to deal with this. And, and I've kind of been dragged uh, into this, not exactly kicking and screaming, but more kind of like, wait, what? Wait, why Why me? What? What's going on? 
And, and you know, the things that I'm talking about with uh, Josh's book and Andrew's book, uh, just to be clear to your listeners, you know, Josh and I have met up uh, probably five times this year at various venues. Andrew and I have dialogued, uh, been at a venue together. We're about to see each other again. In fact, I'll see Andrew and Josh coming up here uh, in about three weeks. So, you know, we're going to have some time to continue hashing through this. So um, I responded to Joshua's book in a forum online uh, called Sapientia. Uh, it was run by the Henry Center at um, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And uh, so they had five of us authors uh, bringing up some critiques and discussions about Josh's book uh, that was published, I think, in, in 2020. Uh, so I can provide you the, the link that you can put down in the uh, show notes. Yeah, please. And so you can see some of the, the theological and scientific critiques. So I talked about some of the scientific critiques over here. Theologically, for Josh and for Andrew, we have a lot of issues. Uh, as you mentioned, there's nothing in Scripture that's explicit that says that there are anybody outside the garden at the time of Adam and Eve. In fact, Scripture, when we start reading it in the details, is very, very clear that the people in Genesis chapter one are Adam and Eve. If we go to Genesis five, which begins the genealogy set, uh, it begins with God talking about having created Adam. Adam is used as a proper name there. Uh, one of the things in Hebrew is that Adam means man, mankind, and Adam specifically. So there's a lot of play uh, that can be used. It's actually a, a neat thing in Hebrew because they can use that word and mean multiple things or one thing and play off of it. So Adam is mentioned and that he has a son by the name of Seth in his own image. So you have that same phrase in his own image, like what we see in Genesis 1 when God makes man in his own image. So there's this interesting blend of terms from Genesis 1 and terms and phrases from Genesis 2 through 4 that are all put together in this first statement about Adam and his life. So clearly the author of Genesis 5 looks at Genesis 1 and 2 as telling us about the same person. So the argument that Josh Swamidas makes that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are separate accounts cannot be sustained. And uh, John Walton tries to make the same argument in some of his books. Basically, Walton is drifting into a genealogical Adam type view or a covenantal Adam type view. Jack Collins is of the same basic opinion. So I think what's happening, you we were talking about old earth creationists and gap theory and day age. What's happening here is that the theologians who don't want to buy into theistic evolution full force are looking at a genealogical solution to having a real Adam. They still want a historical Adam. And genealogical Adam is giving them that without having to fight about the age of the earth or whatnot. So I think this is going to be a very attractive and sadly kind of long-term argument that's going to be around. As it's structured by Josh, his conception simply is not going to be palatable to the theologians. Andrew Loke, in trying to say that anybody who is outside the garden is a non-human, leads us into severe problems because if the genealogical models of Rode et al. don't work out, if it turns out that Kelleher et al. is right and we have a much deeper genealogical ancestry, then Zach, you and I might not be human. That's disturbing. Yeah, it's entirely possible. And so I've written a, a chapter that's going to be coming out in a, a book next year in 2013 on historical Adam. I was asked to do the young earth creation perspective. Andrew Loke was doing the um, genealogical view, William Wayne Craig with his view. And then we have Kenton Sparks presenting a Adam is mythological view. So four different views within this book. We all present our case and then we all submit our arguments against each other and, you know, get beat up and all that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I noted about Andrew Lokes in particular 
but it also applies to Swamidas, is that if the sin of Adam and Eve is then transmitted to these other apparently innocent peoples that, that you know, are not being held accountable for the sins, that, uh, for the behaviors that they're doing, which are identical. I mean, we can go back in the anthropological record, we can find seriously premeditated mass murder going back in Homo sapiens, going back in Neanderthals, going back to Homo antecessor uh, with cannibalism and specifically targeting young people. I mean, it's ugly, it's awful. From a young earth creationist perspective, just to put this in position, young earth creationists would put that hominid record post flood, right? That this is the record of sinful people, real people, real sin, after the flood that God is still going to deal with through the blood of Jesus Christ. But Loke and Swamidas, because of their commitment to an ancient age of the earth, put this before Adam. Therefore, these sins must not be sin. They must be innocent. I have a hard time thinking that if you are selecting small children to capture, butcher, and eat that look just like you, that this is not sin, right? Uh, we've got evidence in the Neanderthal record of uh, purposeful murder, a couple of bashes directly to the head and a body thrown down into a pit along with 20 others. You know, wow. it's, it's, that's mafia stuff going on there. And you either have to say that is part of God's very good creation, and this is what he intends because it's Genesis 1, and at the end of Genesis 1, it's very good. If you take Genesis 2 as being subsequent, sin doesn't come in until after that. All these behaviors are very good. Things that the Bible condemns from top to bottom. And worse for Loke if he says they're not even humans. You know, they're just animals. They have no souls, which means that as Adam and Eve, for both Swamidas and Loke and any other genealogical model, as their children filter out into the world, and have children with innocent tribes, they are converting those tribes from being innocent to guilty. Wow. And I cannot think of a more disastrous way to spread the image of God than to corrupt an innocent world. It's one thing for us to have corrupted parents and therefore from them, we are all corrupt. But for them to then corrupt innocent places through the attrition of children whose parents will neither go to heaven nor hell, but their children are condemned to hell, is wicked. It is completely wicked. And this needs to be stood up against theologically. But there's also good scientific arguments, I think, from the young earth creation side about that these people are actually human. We are the ones who've been saying this for decades now, that Neanderthals are human, that Homo erectus is human. We have been the ones making these claims, and uh, I think it's really interesting now that we're seeing someone like William Lane Craig look at the Neanderthals and say, yeah, they are human. So I guess Adam's got to be way back, you know, three quarters of a million years ago because they're obviously human. And I can agree with Craig. Yeah, they're obviously human. But let's address that time issue. Right. Um, and, and let's put this in a, in a better construction. Yeah. So, yeah, those would be some of the big theological issues. And I think young earth creationists are actually right now positioned in an interesting spot because we might be alone very soon. Within 10, 20 years, we might be basically alone in affirming an original historical Adam and Eve who are the parents of all humans full stop. That's amazing. Without having to say that they're the parents of all humans alive at certain points or all people as we define them in this way, but these other folks aren't. Young earth creationists are going to maintain consistency with the biblical record and with the testimony of the church before saying all human beings come from Adam and Eve. We're going to be the only ones left. And I think that's going to give us opportunity 
to also present to these other theologians who are now scared when they're hearing people say, you can't have Adam, or Adam's got to look like this. Adam's got to be, you know, a million years ago. No, that doesn't comport at all with the Bible. And I think that we're going to get some people hopefully more interested in, in what we say, if we can learn how to say it well, and, and without insulting them when they, when they come in the door, because they've had different opinions with us historically. Yeah. I mean, not to be snarky, but things are a lot simpler when you just take God at his word. Um, it's just, it's amazing the kind of yeah. problems we create uh, when we start to try to fix mistakes that we think that God made in his word. We make a, a worse mess of things, which I think goes what you're describing. I mean, these are big, yeah. complicated, and ugly questions and possibilities that only have to be considered because these views are not accepting what the Bible shows, that Adam and Eve are the federal head of all humanity, and their sin is passed on and affects all of their children. Very simple explanation. You see evidence of mass murder, yeah. of these terrible things in the human or hominid fossil record, we can explain why that happened and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And we can look to church history and say, we've seen when something like this has been tried before and the Orthodox church, small O Orthodox, right? Church has said, no. Right. The problem is now that we've got some, we, we've got ears that are willing to hear something different and maybe say, well, maybe we can still get around this. Don't do it. That's my call. Don't do it. Let's, let's uh, pull back and try something else. So your book uh, that you're co-authoring is coming out 2023, is that correct? Yep, it'll be titled Perspectives on the Historical Adam, and it's being published by B&H Press. Uh, that was Broadman and Holman. It's the Southern Baptist uh, publishing wing, and uh, it's, it's a heavy-hitting one, right? It's intended for seminary students, for uh, pastors, uh, and other interested lay folks, uh, you know, lots of notes and uh, references and whatnot. But it's, it's going to be a, a good academic discussion on this. And um, I'm really excited about it. Um, of the chapters that I've seen, I'm actually most excited about, obviously my own, but uh, <laughs> Kenton Sparks, uh, who takes the Adam is mythological perspective. Hmm. I was most impressed by his of the other three because I found his to be most consistent. He's going to take a perspective and say, listen, if we ditch inerrancy, then we can get around this. It's no big deal. And he follows that logic well. Wow. I, I don't like that logic. I don't like the argument. Um, it's a but good contrast. I credit him for it, it is. It's a really good contrast. We're, we're kind of the bookends on that. And in the middle are supposed to be, you know, the reasonable options, right? You got your right wing crackpot, you got your left wing nut job. And in the middle are two kind of genealogical approaches of Bill Craig and, and Andrew Lope. Uh, but to be honest, I think that um, a lot of the readers are going to look at that middle and say, no, I don't I don't see this working at all. <sighs> Maybe these young earth guys have got something, you know, working for them because I, I don't want to go with the non-inerrancy issue either. So right. I think we're going to come out well. I, I certainly hope so. That's really exciting. You know, we're, we're glad that you're that you're engaged, that you've uh entered the fray uh, on that particular uh, issue. And we'll be looking forward to that book. And maybe we'll have you back to talk more about this issue in a future episode of the podcast. That'd be great. Uh, would you like to share a, a little bit about uh, Cornerstone Educational Supply? You talked a bit about it last time. Yeah. So uh, Cornerstone Educational Supply is um, the stuff store, right? So when your high school uh, curriculum is saying, hey, you need uh, some frogs or fetal pigs, or hey, we need uh, some chemicals and some beakers and, and burners, or if you need some geology kits to learn about earth science and learn about geology, we carry that stuff. We started the company to provide homeschool, private school Christians, uh, and others with materials that affirm their faith rather than uh, try to 
drag it away or just not talk about God at all. Uh, we do a lot of work for classical conversations communities and provide supply kits for those homeschool co-ops. We provide customized uh, kits for things like uh, Berean builders and master books and, and all those sorts of publishers out there, uh, Apologia. So if you're doing uh, some science and you're looking for anything, astronomy stickers, anatomy models, Cornerstone is there to be your stuff supplier, your uh, all-purpose science supply company. So thanks for letting us uh, plug it. You can find us on the web at cornerstone-edsupply.com, uh, cornerstone-edsupply.com. And uh, you can find out more about us and uh, what we do and uh, you know, might see you at a homeschool convention. We, we go to a few of those. So, uh, And you know, hopefully we'll be uh, seeing you guys down in uh, Missouri uh, in a little while. That's right. Yeah. Thank you again, Dr. Marcus, uh, Dr. Ross, for being here with us. Thank you for this engaging discussion. And we'll look forward to hearing from you on future episodes of the podcast here, as well as uh, next time you're in the St. Louis, Missouri area, which uh, will be uh, this next spring, in fact. Uh, hopefully we'll be yeah. seeing you. So. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, Zach, that was interesting. <laughs> you can say that again. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, like I said in the interview, it's a lot simpler when you take God at his word. You know, I think that all of these views, what they have in common really is people are intimidated by science and they feel that in order to believe the Bible at all, they have to find some way to satisfy what the scientific community is. And that's by science, we mean evolutionary science, of course. We mean, right. you know, right. naturalistic, atheistic, materialist, even Christians, many times they function as though they were atheists when it comes to science. Right. And so when Christians are intimidated by that and they feel like I can't question that because that's just too overwhelming, I've got to do something with scripture to make these things fit. And whenever they do this, it always causes more problems than it solves. And right. some of the problems, Absolutely. the problems raised by the genealogical Adam and Eve, you know, Dr. Swamidas is a, a bright guy, but the problems that come up because of his view are in many ways almost scandalous. And I can't see that this is going to be a durable position going forward. I can see why people are turning to it because some of these other positions are starting to become less popular, like gap theory and so forth because they don't work. But this one doesn't work either. It's kind of a consistent theme we see. There's just no way to square that circle of taking man's fallible, materialistic views about the world and then trying to make the scripture, make the Bible accommodate them. And that's what he's doing. Right. It's, you know, the way I always put it is what all of these theories do, what this one and the gap theory and the framework hypothesis and all of them that are out there their initial starting point is God's word doesn't say what it actually says. That is a non-starter. <laughs> it ought to be. Right. It ought to be. That should be something that should set off a lot of red flags. But, you know, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, right? I mean, that was the lie in the garden. You know, did God really say this? He That's... hasn't changed his tactics since then, has he? That's right. He? That's right. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. I'm Marv Schaefer. That's Zach Klein. This has been the Missouri Association for Creation podcast. Just a few reminders. Dr. Marcus Ross actually will be in St. Louis on April 21st and 22nd for a conference at South County Bible Church. You can learn more about that by going to CreationConf, C-O-N-F, short for conference, right? Zach? That's right. Right. CreationConf.com. 
gateway.com. You can learn more about that, uh, the Gateway Creation Conference that will be held next April. If you have any questions or comments, feedback, et cetera, for us here at the podcast, send them to podcast at missouricreation.com. We'd love to hear from you. And please remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on whatever platform you choose to listen to. You can find all our episodes and subscription options at our website, missouricreation.com slash podcast. And since this is our second one, there won't be a whole lot of them up there yet. But That's right. Be patient. <laughs> it'll be growing. So again, thank you for being here. I'm Marv Schaefer, and this has been the Missouri Association for Creation podcast. I'll leave you with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See you next time. <laughs>